When do the sponsorships start? Sponsorships start right now. Episode two brought to you by Nike, brought to you by General Electric, brought to you by Ford, brought to you by Honda. Just do it. Dream big. Go further. Zoom, zoom. Wait, that's, that's Mazda. Mazda. That's okay. Mazda. Uh, that's just a that's just a tasting yeah. of what we could sound like. Brands. Brands. On fleek. Let's name a brand. What Honolulu brand would you want to sponsor us? Ren Spooner. I wear your shirts. Rain I do not Spooner. I do not buy them at factory price because nobody got time for that. They're pricey. Uh, but shout out Bailey's on Kapahulu Ave. Shoots. Hidden Gem. Shoots. All the the best and Gucciest Aloha shirts. Basically, what they do is uh, every time an old man in Kahala dies, they empty out his closet of all his like super classic retro Ren Spooner shirts. They take those bitches to Bailey's. What do we get? Savings, baby. I love it. Bailey's, if you're listening. We'd love to have a sponsorship. Yes. We're cheap. Uh, Rain I'm, Spooner, I'm we're wearing, not as this, cheap. This shirt I'm wearing right now was purchased at Bailey's. I find that I can't really wear a lot of Aloha shirts because I have a long torso and a narrow, although less narrow than it was a year ago, frame. Uh, what ends up happening is every time I lift my hands over my head, I end up having my shirt right up to about my lowest rib and I look like a toddler reaching for a cookie jar. Look, that's why you got to size up like I do. Bro, even when I, but when I size up, yeah. I mean, and I've worn one of your XL shirts, it covers my torso, but it looks like I'm wearing my dad's shirt in like a, a weird family photo from my childhood. I'm still proud of you, son. Thank you. I, I, uh, if we're talking about Loha shirt brands, shout out Tori Richard. Tori Richard, classic look, yeah. Also, shout out Roberta Oaks, who makes phenomenal shirts. I don't know who that is. She's in Chinatown. Okay. Uh, Anti-Roberta? I wouldn't say anti. She's Not anti-status? Slightly older than us. Okay. Maybe younger than us. I don't know. It's hard to tell because... How, uh, how old do you think I am? 64. I feel 64. Uh, Roberta, if you're listening, uh, I'd love to buy and own some of your stuff. Uh, maybe you can just give me some and I'll just keep talking about it. Remains to be seen. The P-tape is real. I'm trying to tell the world I'm nothing to be trifled with. Staying hotter than some rifles. Yeah. This week, Blue Hawaii, we are going to talk about the things that really matter. And we're asking tough questions like, Donald Trump, good Christian? Or greatest Christian. And we actually have our first ever guests. Uh, we have Christopher Garth and Garrett Halladier of the Hawaii Dispensary Alliance and of the Hawaii for Responsible Cannabis Use Super PAC in the house. Uh, and literally the house because we're recording this at my house. Uh, they'll be here to talk a little bit more about uh, the cannabis program in Hawaii broadly and uh, how you can get involved in helping effectuate the change that we'd all like to see and the cannabis program. And Michigan State and the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team, should we fire them all and jail them or burn it all down and salt the earth? Or burn it all down, salt the earth, jail them, and that's just like a combo, two for one. Yeah, these are not mutually exclusive. No. So big story, uh, one of the few stories that cuts across uh, politics, sports, media, culture, uh, the harrowing epidemic of sexual abuse going on uh, around 
the USA Gymnastics Team, and Michigan State Athletics, led by Dr. Larry Nasser, uh, covered up by, it seems, virtually everyone. But instead of talking about that monster, let's focus on those 156 brave-as-hell women and girls who either appeared in court to testify or had statements read, and they took that bastard down. Yeah. That that. is strength that I can't even imagine. No. There's so many people around us who are victims of sexual abuse or sexual assault, and I think it leaves scars that are so deep that it's hard to often talk about it with someone in confidence, to talk about it with a therapist or a family member or uh, a religious leader, whoever. It's hard to talk about it with with literally anyone. And there was nearly 160 women who went up to that stand and spoke about it in public and said not only me too, but also said never again. And they are trailblazers and they are to be praised and lauded and supported and there's probably people listening right now who are thinking back to their own experiences of sexual abuse and who are thinking back to the way that they felt or still feel and the guilt that they carry with them and uh, these women provided an incredible example of courage and an incredible example of of speaking truth to power. Mm -hmm. And if you're out there and you're feeling that if you're feeling the shame or the weight of abuse or assault that's happened to you, uh, both Josh and I here hope that you know that it's not your fault and that you are loved and that even if no one else does, uh, there's two guys that are totally supportive of you and that amen shout out shout out to all the ladies and not just the ladies of this particular atrocity but all the women who in general have to deal with sexual assault or have to deal with sexual abuse or have to deal with sexual harassment and men and men and men yeah it's admittedly probably fewer men than women right but yeah absolutely no. it's an it's an atrocious issue nobody's immune nobody's immune and it's touched every one of us yeah. no pun intended uh, uh, it's it's no one's immune and it's affected every single person that we know to some degree mm-hmm. uh so to all those ladies out there i don't know how many usa gymnasts are listening to this but uh you're the best keep it up keep it up now it's unclear, you know, resignations are coming. It's unclear uh, if anybody else is going to face charges. Uh, Michigan State seems to, you know, at first when this first leaked, people were saying, oh, this is the new Penn State. And it appears to be even bigger than that. It, comp- it appears to yeah. be astronomically yeah. worse than Penn State. Oh, and also, you know, at the perfect time while this is going on, you know, it's Title IX, uh, sex assault on college campus, that helped, you know, bring all this to light. Betsy DeVos Secretary of Education, trying to get Title IX because the problem is... The women, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's just another... Speaking of priorities, backwards priorities from top to bottom. It's another tone-deaf move by our administration. I mean, we're looking to uh, scale down mm-hmm. protections of the fairer gender uh, across 
the board when instead we should probably be doubling it. Yep. Because we don't need title. We don't need title nine. We need title eighteen. <laughs> we need title eighty one. We need nine squared. Yes. We nine nine nine. Wait, I I don't even know what that is. What was that that's uh, seven hundred and twenty nine? What? Somebody check me on that. Is nine times nine times nine seven hundred and twenty? No, I mean nine hundred ninety nine. Oh, it's not it's not quite as mathematical, but it's effective. Uh, listeners, if you're shout out, out there, Herman Cain, please uh, please just take a quick look and see what nine to the third is, and hopefully it's seven hundred twenty nine. And now some local news. A lot's happened since we last recorded. A lot of people got in touch. They appreciated us sharing our stories about living through what, at the time, seemed like near certain death. Yeah. Uh, And today, the Hawaii State Department of Defense announced that it has terminated the employee responsible for sending out that false alarm. Yeah, I read that report, and it was saying, uh, I believe it was a joint report with the FCC, and the FCC uh, concluded that the gentleman was unprepared Mm -hmm. for the drill that was run, and actually believed it to be an incoming nuclear missile. And so, honestly, if you remember last week, I was telling you I was very angry. I actually felt some modicum of relief and that it wasn't just a, a pure slip of the hand uh, that the guy responsible for making me believe that me and pretty much everyone I love was about to die also believed that he and everyone he loved was about to die as well. It felt like, you know, eye for an eye. Nobody's perfect. Nuke for a nuke. Yeah. So I'll go ahead and I'll quote directly from... Uh Civil Beat article by Nick Grube. Shout out, shout out Civil Beat. Shout so, out Civil Beat. So shout out Nick Grube. The state employee whose errant click of a computer mouse sent a message to thousands of Hawaii residents telling them that a ballistic missile was heading toward the islands has been fired, according to officials within the State Department of Defense. The state investigation found that the employee had confused emergency drills with real threats at least two times prior, once during a fire incident test and again during a tsunami warning test. This guy is just gullible. The employee has a history of performance problems and has been a, quote, source of concern, end quote, for more than 10 years, according to the report. Maybe don't put that guy in charge of letting us know whether a nuclear missile is heading toward us. Several of his colleagues stated during the investigation that they were not comfortable with him as a supervisor, part of a two-person team, or even as a member of the state warning apparatus in general. That's a pretty damning... That's not a ringing endorsement, to say the least. No, and well, it's going to be hard. Imagine if you're that guy, and you you were at HEMA prior to your new job, and you go in for an interview, and they go, oh, I see you're at HEMA for for 20 years or 10 years or however long. Why'd you leave? Why'd you leave? Well... <laughs> there's a thing. I mean, you know every single person who interviews for a job and has Hawaii Emergency Management on their resume for like the next... 20 years here is going to be asked, yep. were you there? I was Were there. you that guy? That was you, you, it was you, wasn't it? If you were, you're screwed. Yeah. Literally no one will want to hire you. Rightly so. I mean, you screwed up, guy. <laughs> I feel for him. I really do, though. Yeah. Uh, also in local news, Lieutenant Governor Shan Sitsui resigned. Mm-hmm. This leaves quite a big hole in our state's executive branch. Somebody's going to need to sign those name change papers. Somebody who's going to let people know when your name gets changed. Uh, I know there's quite a few people vying for the spot, notably uh, Kim Koko Iwamoto, the first openly transgender person in, uh, in Hawaii state political history, uh, who is 
currently breaking ground with the way that she's running her campaign and the dignity with which she's operating. You think she's got a good shot or you think the incumbent's going to potentially drown her out with the incumbent advantage? Well, there is no incumbent now. Well, there's going to be somebody who gets appointed with his, his or her five or six months of experience, I guess. Their name's going to still appear at the top their, of the ballot. Isn't their it? name. Well, I thought it was, alpha, I think it's alphabetical. I don't think the incumbent goes first. I think it's all alphabetical. I've never voted. That's not true. <laughs> it's just been a while. It's been a while since we've, we've well, we don't vote every year. Do we? Some of us vote three times a year. Who votes three times a year? Uh, all the dead people in Donald Trump's voter fraud commission <laughs> rolls. <laughs> vote early and vote often. <laughs> also in local news, uh, the judiciary found itself at the center of a bit of drama after a Native Hawaiian man who was protesting a Haleakala telescope attempted to register his appearance at Maui District Court in Hawaiian and was denied by the judge who actually later issued a warrant for his arrest. Now, the warrant was recalled, but it sparked a firestorm uh, and brought back a lot of old controversies and old debates surrounding the use of the Hawaiian language, which for many years was outlawed and unlawful to speak. You know, it's one of the languages enshrined in our state constitution as an official language. And going forward, we're going to have to figure out how do we incorporate this in a just, fair way. Sure. So stay tuned. Uh, this weekend, we're coming coming soon. We'll be talking to some young Native Hawaiian leaders, get their insights, get their views, and hopefully we'll have some stuff to share with you. Switching gears to national news, there's been no war with North Korea yet. Thank God. However, right now, Donald Trump is currently giving the State of the Union address, which we are not watching or listening to. Uh, the bar has been set so low that... You can't hear it. If... <laughs> Basically, as long as President Babyman makes through the speech without drooling on himself, he'll have made the pivot. He'll have finally became America's president. Somebody in the White House writes those speeches. Stephen and, Miller. Yeah. Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller. And, you know, it's it's greeted like a combination of FDRs, the only f- thing we have to fear is fear itself, plus Winston Churchill's, you know, we shall defend our island, plus... You know, going on and on and on and on forever. You know, ask him any question, any question about any of the issues he's talking about. Ask him specific. Ask him specific. Ask him, like, ask him what does Medicare do? I don't think he can answer that question. And stop falling for the newest news cycle clip yep. in a way to to mollify advertisers. The media, the media is mostly interested in horse race narratives. We know? cannot as a country, keep following this guy down every dark rabbit hole, lest we lose truly important issues in in the fray. I mean, how many incredibly important scandals or legislative proposals Dude, whole, or policies? Whole, you know, pick a random day over the past 365 days, see what the president of the United States did, and think to yourself, would any of the previous 44 presidents have gotten away with it? What we're living in is not normal. And it's... It's being normalized despite several groups and several individuals' best efforts. And as we saw, we saw today, you know, Devin Nunes' doctored memo, the Republican Party is going to go right along with it. Jane Mayer, in her fantastic book, Dark Money, talks about uh, the playbook for uh, the anti-government libertarian movement, largely funded by the Koch brothers, the Mercer family, uh, basically the the dark money of the far right. Basically, you know, in their model of libertarianism, instead of having the government, we're all beholden to corporations and rich people. Well, what I notice every time I read dark money is 
there's so much attention paid to the idea of creating false equivalency, mm-hmm. creating the idea that uh, that the right does it as bad as the left, or the left does it as bad as the right, that CNN is as bad as Fox News, that there's lying on both sides. There and, was a, con- a congressman from Florida, Matt Getz, I think is his name. He, you know, has been on every, you know, he's on Fox News every day talking about we need to purge the FBI, et cetera, et cetera, on and on. He posted on Twitter, you know, a little little bit of, you know, self-aggrandizement talking about his, his press junket. He said, we've been all over the ideological spectrum from MSNBC to InfoWars. So in their frame of mind, Alex Jones' Sandy Hook truther, 9-11 inside job is the exact same thing as Joe you know, Scarborough. As Joe Scarborough, like the former Republican member of Congress. It's not true. Unfortunately, I, I believe that uh, the left is trying very hard to make peace with the right. I think that there's a, there's a desire to create compromise. Because Democrats love norms. They love Democrats civility. Democrats love institutions. Love, yeah. If, you, if you're the party that thinks government can do something good in people's lives, it's, you know, it would behoove you to try to make the government work. Until we start truly recognizing and saying, no, uh, this isn't a both sides issue. This is a extremism issue. Uh, we're not going to necessarily make any progress. And I say that as a person who comes from the most extreme political environment in the United States, uh, in Alabama, that is the essentially the hotbed of the conservative Tea Party movement. Creating compromise has never pacified extremism. Uh, it's it's essentially a strategy of appeasement. We're not going to be able to compromise our way out of this extreme uh, anti-government, anti-community, anti-the uh, good of the people political philosophy. Yeah. As we've seen, you know, if the right wing, if conservatives in America can't win through the ordinary democratic process, they're not going to abandon conservatism. They're going to abandon democracy. That's exactly right. And that's what we're seeing. We're see- 100%. And I'm glad you brought this up. Your your home state sort of uh, has been like a little microcosm distillation of this phenomenon, you know, looking at the Roy Moore race. But let's talk about the two things you're never supposed to talk about. That is uh, Alabama and Auburn football. Close. Oh, Relig- I'm from Alabama, though. We- I come by it earnestly. Religion and politics. Yep, let's talk about them. So we saw this Roy Moore, Judge Roy Moore, separation of search and state, totally moot, whatever. Breitbart's editor-in-chief came out not too long after his failed, after Roy Moore's failed campaign and said, yeah, we, we believed his accusers. We thought he was a terrible candidate, but we still sent in operatives to try and dig up dirt about those girls who were accusing Roy Moore of sex assault. So winning is certainly more important than morality. Absolutely. And, and we've taken that to the national level. You know, uh, Ryan, I'm going to read you some quotes, and I'd like to get your response. Ryan, you are a self-described Christian. That is correct. Big fan of the Jesus. Yes. Well, these other uh, self-described Christians weighed in on just what a great president Donald Trump is, and I'd like to read these for you. Please. Franklin Graham, son of... Famous Pastor Billy Graham. Evangelist. Evangelist. Worldwide evangelist. We've never had this, not in my lifetime. He defends the Christian faith more than any president in my lifetime. Tony Perkins, head of the Family Research Council, which has been labeled a hate group because of its strong views on anti-LGBT issues, quote, we were tired of being kicked around by Barack Obama and his leftists, and I think they're finally glad 
that there's somebody on the playground willing to punch the bully. When asked about turning the other cheek, some of you may have heard that expression before, Perkins responded, you know, you only have two cheeks. Which is factually wrong, by the way. Yep. If you include your butt cheeks, you have four cheeks. You've got an easy four. There should be a, there should be some turning. Yeah. As Margaret Thatcher might say, this lady is for turning. Look, Christianity is not all about being a welcome mat, which people can stomp their feet on. Unless you read the Gospels. And finally, Jerry Falwell Jr., son of the late Jerry Falwell Sr., uh, and current president of Liberty University, said, yes, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the actual quote in front of me, but yes, it's true that Jesus did say, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God's what is God's, blah, blah, blah. However, Jesus never told Caesar, you know, how to run his government, how to treat his population, how to do this, how to do that, X, Y, Z. From the birth of the religious right through now, They've been telling us gay marriage will destroy the fabric of society. Homosexuality caused 9-11. Masturbation causes hurricanes. And now they've decided, hey, we've got a president. You know, he may, uh, he may do a little bit of locker room talk. He may be a 19-time alleged accused sexual harasser. He may be the embodiment of every repulsive characteristic about the worst things of America. But he's our guy. So I guess my question is, Ryan, when are you going to get your fellow Christians under control? You know, I feel very strongly about this. I was raised in a very, very conservative home, uh, somewhere far to the right of Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, I, I ate, slept, and breathed uh, talk radio. I still know AM 1170 in Montgomery, Alabama, played Rush Limbaugh and then Sean Hannity right after him, and I loved it. I grew up eating that stuff up. It wasn't until what was the, what's the appeal like when you listen to it? What what are you thinking? This you know these guys are saying what I've been thinking but can't articulate. They like they get it. They know what we're talking or like they they see through the you know lamestream media BS. Is it a little bit of everything? I think that I think there's a, a lot going on there. Um, I, you can't paint with too broad of a brush, mm-hmm. but I'll give you a couple of of broad stroke items. I think the first is a natural culture that has been sown there, uh, a culture of distrust. Mm-hmm. I don't think people trust people down of, south anymore. And On a person-to-person level? On, or on a person-to-person like level. Like neighbor, neighbors don't trust neighbors? I think it probably started as yeah. a – it probably started as uh, something – that Lee Atwater did with the Southern yeah. strategy to sow but, discord. Yeah, you know, the whole, the whole birth of, you know, the, the homeschooling movement of all these things, it all traces back to a reaction, not of contrary to popular belief, you know, the founding, like what they like to say, the founding myth is Roe versus Wade that activated the right wing. Like they were all, you know, they weren't really into politics before, but no, it actually goes before that. Uh, it goes all the way back to Brown versus Board of Education and the desegregation of schools. I think it goes back further than that. I think it goes to the Civil War. I think it goes to Reconstruction. I think I think you can trace the conservative American movement back to truly slavery. Mm-hmm. And the way that politics is traditionally operated has been from a place of fear. We scare people into doing the things that we want them to do. I think that was more weaponized in the wake of the civil war mm-hmm. um specifically in reconstruction when you start having groups emerge like the kkk mm-hmm. um which you know influenced everyone by fear but then also was intoxicating i believe to 
uh, the populace there because it offered the white, the white populace. Let's let's be let's, yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's be clear. Absolutely, the white populace and only the white populace yeah. because it promised power. They promised power over your fear, and I think what that turns into is whenever I feel powerful, I feel very powerful, mm-hmm. and whenever I don't feel powerful, I feel very scared. Mm-hmm. And what that leads to is a search for a certain feeling and a certain um, posture that's going to make you feel more secure. Enter and, Donald Trump. And where I think that, that that terminates is in a place of, of mistrust or distrust, excuse me. I think it terminates in a place of distrust because you don't want to, you don't want to give too much uh, power to any other person because you're still feeling uh, powerless yourself because it's a zero sum game for me to give you a certain modicum of trust requires uh, me to give up a certain portion of my power and control. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's that's one broad stroke. I think the other broad stroke, and as silly as this is, the South is really good at team sports. Down South, you our can, team versus that team, exactly. that team being those godless liberals and led by and their team captain yep. Nancy Pelosi. Yep. Barack Obama, et cetera, et cetera, on and on. I 100% believe that that's a true thing. And somebody told me one time to stop treating politics like a team sport yeah. and things become more rational. And once I sort of stepped back from that perspective, it absolutely did become more rational. Mm-hmm. I think in places like Alabama, it's much easier to align yourself with a certain team because you already have to choose one. I mean, we talked about in episode one, yeah. you're born choosing Auburn, Alabama, People don't switch sides, and the same thing is true in politics. You born Republican or Democrat, and people rarely switch sides. Now, what, now you, know, you did switch sides. That's true. Does it? If you hadn't come to Hawaii, would you have switched sides fully in the way you did, or were you already realizing that the far right didn't have all the answers you wanted? When I came to Hawaii, it was 2012, uh, right after I graduated college, and I had started to drift to the left uh considering the place that i was starting from i mean i'm i'm it, i hadn't gone very far left um i remember when i first met you 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 were still pretty like right of center i would think i would say i was i was you know for hawaii i'm like, like a, i'm a tea party yeah. uh raving lunatic uh for alabama at that point i was a pinko commie because yeah. i thought that you know black people didn't deserve to all be poor but <gasps> what a novel concept. <laughs> but uh yeah, when when I came to Hawaii, I was pretty right of center. I I was probably more on the fiscal conservative side than I am now. Um I'm still somewhat socially conservative, especially I mean we've talked about it before on on abortion. I certainly have moral quandaries. That's uh that, that's for another episode. Yeah. We're and I think it's okay to, for people to feel differently on yeah. abortion. It, it's weird. and the other thing you you know you talk about team sports, the hyper the hyper, hyper, hyper partisanship polarization of our country. It's not realistic to have a platform where everybody must agree on all 20 issues. People aren't like that. And that's that we talked about that on in episode one with a demand for ideological purity. Mm-hmm. It's it's real. And if you don't agree with every single issue, however rapidly the issues may change, as we've seen in a post-Trump America, you're condemned to be an outsider. So what ends up happening is because you don't want to be ostracized because this, you know, culture and these people and this ideology is all you've known and all you've bought into, you buy in really hard and Mm -hmm. you listen whenever Fox News says, you know what, the party line's changed. And I know we said today's Thursday, but it's actually Wednesday. And you go, you know what? It's feeling pretty good for a Wednesday. Yeah. 
That uh, obstruction? What obstruction? There's no obstruction. The president can't obstruct. It's so just, I'll just I'll never get over like in just speaking. You know, the oh you know nobody's perfect. Donald Trump's our president. We must you know, you got to respect the president. You got to respect the president. He's our president. You know, blah blah blah. This that this that. Barack Obama, the Antichrist. I actually, and we've talked about this before. I remember in 2008 mm-hmm. when I was still I was a college freshman. Uh, and I was I was very far right of center. I mean, I was I was still a, a Fox News Republican. Um, Sean Hannity was my favorite talking head that Ugh. I'd ever seen. I remember listening to Sean Hannity and hearing something to the effect of, you know, John McCain was his he called his bus that he was touring across America and the Straight Talk Express. Yeah. And I remember Sean Hannity saying something to the effect of. Uh, on his radio show lead-in, this is the stop the liberal, stop the Muslim, stop the uh, chosen one, Barack Obama Express. I remember that, uh, and I remember thinking, this, guy's, this guy must be really bad. And despite the fact that Barack Obama is like, was like the most charming, just eloquent, also, w- wonderful, also, dignified president also, I've ever seen. Also, let's be real, a fairly centrist technocratic, slightly aloof, you know, not a, not a flaming leftist by any means. No, no, no. I mean, he was, he was essentially a a Bill Clinton Democrat, but but better without all the gross stuff, without all the cigars. And I remember the night that Barack Obama got elected, uh, in November of my freshman year, I remember thinking, well, there goes America because I'd been told that that was what would happen. It's, It's funny how eight years later, I imagine you had the exact same feeling on election night. You'd be quite right about that. We've come full circle. Yeah, and and it's a very odd feeling because being the person who is on one side of it and then coming back and being the person who's now on the other side of it, there is a natural sensation mm-hmm. where you go, if I was being Holy lied to then, crap. Yeah. am I being lied to now? Yeah. And you start to sort of wonder. And that brings it full circle back to the idea of false equivalency where you have to say all lies aren't equal mm-hmm. and all misdeeds aren't equal. And we have to start calling them and separating them out for what they are. So it doesn't appear that the evangelical base is moving away from Trump anytime soon. No. Uh, Mike Pence uh, shows up in Bethlehem, which is home to, you know, the OG Christians. And 13 denominations of Palestinian Christians will not meet with him because of Trump's embassy decision. Now, it's one thing to have your politics be governed by the religious right. But now we've got our policies, our, you know, the day-to-day operations of the United States government are essentially in, slowly, slowly instituting a theocracy. You I, know, in, terms of, in terms of the justification for our major policy decisions, it's what will make the evangelicals happy. It's, you know, the Jerusalem embassy move, which if we have another four hours to rant about sometime, we'll talk about that in a future episode. The, the fact that faith-based activists in Arizona are being arrested for leaving food and water for immigrants trying to make it across the border. Um, does that sound like something Jesus would do? I don't know. The no, the, the new rules allowing doctors and pharmacists and hospitals to refuse treatment to LGBT people. If they're uncomfortable, you know, forget about, forget about American rules. Forget about the golden rule. Forget about the, what about the Hippocratic oath? What about first do no harm? Is that, you know, do no harm. Unless they're the gays, in which case, go ahead. Like, how is that, how is that quote-unquote Christian? I mean, 
you know, I, I, I don't know the Bible as well as you do, but I did, a, I did three years of Catholic school, Catholic middle school. I did four years of Episcopal high school, and I did a semester at a Jesuit college. And I don't remember any of this stuff. This doesn't sound like, this doesn't sound like the Jesus that they were talking about. Well, that's because he wasn't Republican Jesus. Uh, you, no. So I feel pretty strongly about this. When I started Drift Left, uh, when I moved to Hawaii, one of the uh, principles that actually really challenged me in my faith was what if Jesus meant what he said in the Gospels? What if he really did mean... To, oh, it wasn't just an, an analogy. What if he... Yeah, what if he didn't mean this is what I want you to do when it's convenient? What yeah. if he really meant sell all you have and give it to the poor? What if he really meant, you know, turn no, the other cheek? That's just a metaphor. It's a metaphor. And that's that's what I'd been told growing up. You know, he, I'd been told that... Uh, when Jesus turns over the the money tables and uh, for the money changers in the temple in the Bible, uh, as he's essentially reconsecrating it, that that was uh, a justification that it's okay to get angry and go to war, even though he says, you know, turn the other cheek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and forget about the forget about the Old Testament. I mean, like the Old Testament only seems to matter when we need excuses to beat up on the gays. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, the second principle that really guided me in that that transformation was that you don't keep politics and religion separate for the benefit of the politics. Mm-hmm. You keep it separate for the benefit of religion. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And somehow I think I think that as Christians, a lot of my people have been co-opted into believing that somehow absolute power won't corrupt the church right. or it won't corrupt the people leading it. And I think we've seen empirically that's not true. Right. If you find yourself looking at Donald J. Trump, the human being, not you know, not the president and not any commentary from just objectively look at him. And if you look at that guy and you think that's, you know, that's a leader I'm proud of. That's somebody I believe my faith tells me is somebody like who has merit, who has, you know, who I should follow, who will lead us to victory over our enemies. What do you do with that? I don't know. And unfortunately, it's really hard to convince people of something when they believe that there is a a mandate from heaven on it. Right. Um, why, why compromise? We have God on our side. Exactly. And the election of Donald Trump seemed to confirm to a lot of people that God really is a Republican and that against all odds, uh, this man, this outsider – who had never had any lick of political experience and was an incredibly flawed candidate, that his election was proof that God was was wanting uh, a Republican in office. And not only that, his I mean, qualification— God, cer- God certainly wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> it, more, than, more than just his election being confirmation that God was on the GOP side— in some circles, there's actually a belief that because he's so unqualified, because he shouldn't be in office, because he is— That's even more proof of the miracle. even of more the, proof. The, the miracle. It's, they look at it analogous to uh, the Moses issue in Exodus where he tells God, you know, what will I say? Uh, I have the I'm best. Not, I have the best words. I'm not a good speaker. He has all of these things, all these different—I think he says I'm old. He throws up all these— I have a lisp. Yeah, he th- yeah. he throws up all of these uh, all these objections because he says I'm unqualified and God still tells him to do it. And obviously, you know Moses is the most vaunted of all the uh, Hebrew leaders. 
And I think a lot of people imagine Trump is something of an evangelical Moses. Well, if that's the case, I don't know if God's a Republican, but he definitely has a sick sense of humor. Welcome back, everybody. We're very pleased to have with us tonight two of our good friends from the Hawaii Dispensary Alliance, Mr. Christopher Garth and Mr. Garrett Halladier. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey, aloha. Hey, good to be here. Yeah, thanks so much, gentlemen. It's a pleasure. So first, uh, just for those listening at home, what is HDA? What do you guys do? HDA stands for Hawaii Dispensary Alliance. It's a trade association to really create a business environment and a cannabis-based economy in the state of Hawaii. So for those of us who aren't intimately familiar with the current business environment in the state of Hawaii's medical cannabis program, uh, could you explain a little bit more about why we need the services that you're all providing? Because it seems like the program's already up and running. We have dispensaries and and we sort of have the infrastructure already. Where does HDA come into all that? Good question. Um, Medical cannabis was brought to Hawaii in 2000. It was passed by the legislation. It was the first state to actually do so. Um, But between 2000 and 2014, there was no opportunity for anyone to actually get their cannabis, get their medicine. What do you mean? No dispensary, no outlet, no retail facility. Actually, nothing had been legislated to create um, an economy of scale or a marketplace. So they legalized medicinal cannabis, but then how did people have medicinal cannabis? That's the great unknown. So for 14 years, people were... Trading it, sharing it, growing it. Was it legal to grow it at home? It was legal as long as you had submitted paperwork and had been certified by the Department of Public Safety. So, Not the Department of Health? Correct. That was later, and that was ultimately the legislation that brought forth the dispensary program and tried to create retail opportunity and better, safer access to medicine in general to the patients. So what are your roles? What do you both do for the HDA? Uh, Or maybe even more broadly, can you give us just kind of a quick overview of what the HDA does, what its aims are, you know, so on and so forth? We focus on, as Chris said, kind of the business relationships, making sure that our members, kind of like a chamber of commerce, have the opportunity to uh, meet other members, expand their businesses, engage in the business uh, community. We also give them the opportunity to kind of put their voices together to be heard at the legislative level, uh, whether to the state, uh, a little bit at the federal level through some of our new partnerships, um, and also in kind of your county level as well. And that's what Chris's lead role with the organization is, is is in facilitating those conversations. Uh, And the third kind of plank of what the Hawaii Dispensary Alliance does is we focus on public education, uh, both for the businesses, for the patients, for the legislators, and for the uh, public at large to kind of understand both what the medical cannabis industry is and what it could do for Hawaii and what it does actively do for the patients who use uh, medical cannabis. Right. So we're, as Garrett mentioned, we're a chamber of commerce and we're no different than other chamber of commerce across the nation. However, ours focuses specifically on cannabis. Now you, you make a good point. You're just like any other chamber of commerce. How have you found you've had to deal with sort of like the stigmatization of marijuana in your day to day? You know, I don't think the stigmatization is really that great. In the general public, people recognize what we do as far as being um, proponents of medical cannabis, and we're widely accepted. Every conversation that we have is generally positive. There are a lot of questions um, about the program and about the direction of things, but in the end, we don't really face much stigma from the from the public. Mm-hmm. The places that we do have a little bit of friction is with maybe some of the business owners or maybe the legislature, 
uh, the legislature, uh, and a lot of times it's kind of the established professional services industry. When you guys say the legislature, what do you mean by that? Is it the apparatus itself? Is it certain people within the legislature? Um, So let's back up and give a little bit of context uh, for the current incarnation of the medical marijuana program in Hawaii. Sure. Uh, It started in 2000, like Chris said, with the passage of the original personal use and personal grow rules for patients. Um, in 2014, some bills were introduced. 2015, they passed creating a dispensary program. That dispensary program was moved from the Department of Public Safety at that time to the Department of Health. It authorized the release of eight different licenses uh, for dispensaries. Those dispensaries each had to grow, manufacture, and sell their own products, and they could not sell back and forth to each other. So what you're saying is from 2000 to 2014, the grow your own rule was in place, but people weren't really doing it. So it sounds like the legislature thought that dispensary, a dispensary program might be a good idea. And so they handed out eight, they basically created or allowed for the creation of eight dispensaries. uh, And then those dispensaries operate independently of each other and grow all their own product. And they're not allowed to, as you said, trade back and forth. So they can't say, you know, I'll give you 10 pounds of this if you give me five pounds of that and so on and so forth. Correct. Though it's not quite accurate to say that uh, people weren't involved in the industry. There was about nine to 10,000 patients during that time period, or at least by 2012, uh, 13, 10,000 people that were trying to grow their own, that were trying to grow their own, who had legally registered with the state. There was Mm -hmm. obviously a considerably larger number beyond that who had not registered with the state. How many patients are there now? Now there are 19,858 patients as of the end of the year. Wow. Um, Big Island, for the longest time, had about 6,000, 6,500 of those patients and was the largest um, uh, kind of place where it was the, the industry existed. Um, in the last month, December, uh, Oahu finally kind of overcame them, given our population advantages and having a larger number of patients on the island. Uh, there were three licenses issued for Oahu, two for Maui, two for Big Island, and one for Kauai. Uh, of those dispensaries right now... Wait, did you say there's only three dispensaries on Oahu? There are three licenses for dispensaries. That's each, right, only three. Each license can have up to, well now, up to three retail locations and three grow sites. Each license can have three So there can be as many as nine retail locations on Oahu. And how many retail locations are there currently open? Currently, two of the licensees have each opened one retail location. God, that's so a hard math problem. We are at two-ninths, less than a third We're of at, the legal capacity of this island. So, like, why is that? That's a hard question to ask. Um, well, maybe the easiest answer is there's not necessarily the patient base. And when we mention, when we say patient base, there are not enough customers that are engaging in the dispensary program. So even with just those two open uh, the current DOH statistics from uh, November show that only or that less than ten percent of Hawaii's patients are actually using the dispensaries each month. They're still sticking with homegrown or black or market or. Why would they choose? Is it just because it's cheaper to grow their own or? So we haven't been able to conduct any market research, if you will. But the Department of Health is providing some really good statistics, as Garrett provided, as to who's going to the, the dispensaries and what they're buying. And the common conversation that comes out is there's a very limited selection of product. And part of that is due to the legislation, which explicitly limits those products. What is it limited to? Well, 
Or what can you not have is maybe a better question. See, you can't have pre-rolls and you can't have edibles. Pre-rolls, what do you, you mean? That's a marijuana cigarette. Okay, pre-rolls. And you can't joints. have pre-filled vaporizer cartridges Right, either. so no so vaping. no sort of oil or anything like that. You can have oil, but you have to load your own cartridge. So for is someone, that a hard process? It's an incredibly difficult process. Even rolling a cannabis cigarette, if you're not skilled or if you have arthritis, arthritis or cancer, or cancer or, yeah. Yeah, or if you're in your later stages of life, uh, imbibing this cannabis is incredibly difficult. Now, again, we'll point to the legislature for the shortcomings of this program. By creating a, vertical, a vertically oriented program, um, such that each licensee has to grow, manufacture, and retail their own cannabis without opportunity for another subcontractor or contractor to to play in basically, this in this program. It's a siloed operation. You're saying basically to have to be the basically the farm to table weed solution rather than we're going to buy it from this good grower Correct. and then Correct. sell it here and compete in a in a real true free market. Exactly. And the end result has been prices at the dispensaries that are consistently 2 to 3 times higher than the black market. As well as a quality and a product quantity that pales in comparison to the the diversity that is available on the black market. In other words, the the buds are just not iry. The buds may be iry, but they might not they might not help your qualifying condition. Let's back up a little bit. When you said uh, you had a, a, a public enemy number one, I'm, I was expecting you to say uh, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. No, JBS, yep. not an issue. For those of you listening at home, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions is the Keebler elf turned virulently racist KKK apologist who President Trump appointed to be our attorney general and head of our Justice Department. Um, attorney General Sessions has recently advocated for prosecuting marijuana offenses uh, at the federal level more aggressively, which potentially threatens millions of recreational and legal marijuana users across the country, and also casts doubt on his uh, proponency for states' rights. We thought under the Obama administration that the states were going to be sort of left to do what they wanted with medical marijuana. You know, uh, small government conservatives, they're big on the 10th Amendment, they're big on states' rights, these whole things. So the Cole Memo, tell us about that, what happened. Actually, uh, before we talk about what happened with the Cole Memo, Garrett, would you mind giving us a really quick overview of just what the Cole Memo was and, and what it did? Cole Memo was the Department of Justice issuing uh, federal guidelines to federal prosecutors uh, as to the types of things that would create a well-regulated medical cannabis program. And when you say well-regulated, why, why did they concern themselves with the term well-regulated? Uh, they wanted to show or they wanted to minimize federal outlay for cannabis enforcement. And so they said in state programs where the point of the program is medicinal and where there's regulations that prevent children access, trafficking, uh, illegal sales to the black market, whoever states have those types of regulations will let the state enforce, uh, will let the state do the enforcement of cannabis or particularly medical cannabis and will keep federal resources for international trafficking, border trafficking, large-scale uh, criminal uh, activity. One of the, one of the more... Con- important considerations is that it did allow federal prosecutors to go after and state prosecutors to go after those who were not compliant with state programs. Mm -hmm. So by no means was it a free pass to the industry or to drug dealers. It actually said, hey, if you're working outside of the very strict confines of the law. They're fair game too. You are fair game. You're the only fair game. But it created that division, that dichotomy that said, hey, these guys who play by the rules, they're good and we're we're going to let the states do it, do what they will with it. 
But if you're a bad guy, you better watch out. Sounds like a perfectly reasonable memo by the Obama administration and one that seems to comport with conservative principles, especially, you know, states' rights, which has historically been an excuse for them to refuse to do just about anything they don't want to do from, you know, uh, implementing the Affordable Care Act to issuing marriage licenses to LGBT couples. So what's been the fate of the Cole memo under the Trump administration so far? The Department of Justice, when uh, the Trump administration took over, initiated a nationwide uh, study of all of the current both medical and recreational programs to go talk to the states and figure out how law enforcement was doing, really check on the uh, the results of the Cole memo in these states. Uh, the results of that report are still secret, though we've had some leaks about uh, what was being said in those meetings. And they kind of generally came back from the states as being uniformly positive. The states really appreciate cannabis for its economic drivers, for its uh, kind of lightening of the load in the civil court systems or the criminal court systems on the prisons. Uh, and so Jeff Sessions buried that report. No one has seen the end result of that to this day. Uh, but about a month and a half later, two months later, after uh, the final results of the report were delivered to him. He, uh, he rescinded the Cole memo. He came out and said in three paragraphs on one page to counter the arguments presented in four documents by the administration, swiftly said, um, yeah, we're going to encourage prosecutors now to go after medical and adult use cannabis programs and players. He didn't say encourage. He said he would leave it up to the traditional prosecutorial discretion guidelines. Which so, in Jeff Sessions' lingo is string them up. Exactly. Indeed. Go Indeed. for it. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, but there is still some protection at the federal level. There is. So the Rybacker Farr Amendment was initially introduced to create a safeguard for medical cannabis programs. And it was introduced in 2001, but took a very long time to finally work its way through and gain acceptance into the House Appropriations Bill, which, as we all know, um, is the budget bill for the government. And if they cannot make consensus between the two chambers or even within a single chamber, the government can shut down, which is... That's not, I mean, that's never happened before. It, we're, we just figured it out, but... It, I'm sorry, we just figured it out last week... Uh, government is up and running again. However, come February 8th, we're going to be in the same boat. So this is a short-term fix to a long-term problem. So what does Rohrbacker Farr do? Rohrbacker Farr is, n- is no longer Rohrbacker Farr. It's Rohrbacker Blumenauer, which is um, a Democratic – I'm sorry. That's a Blum- Dana, Dana Rohrbacher from California and Earl Blumenauer from Oregon? Correct. Thank you. So it's a bipartisan agreement within the House that keeps – federal dollars away from the prosecution of any legal medical cannabis operation in a medical cannabis state. Medical, not legal states. Correct. So strictly medical. So basically what they're saying is uh, Session said you can go after them, but you just can't use any federal money to do it. That's correct. Now, so there's still, we're still safe with a wink and a nod. That is correct. We're still safe with a wink and a nod up until February 8th. At which point, all bets may be off. Correct. I think when the government shuts down, that means laws don't apply anymore. Basically. I believe that's how that works. I think that's what The Purge is all about. You heard it here, folks. Tune in February 8th. The Purge. February 9th. We'll see who's left. Uh, So we've we've talked about the federal level. Uh, Switching back to the state, last week, legislature opened for business. 2018, it's an election year. What's on your guys' radar? We started tracking 94 bills. But of that, we'll probably just look at a dozen that will make it into and out of committee. 
but we've we've seen great progress, even though we'll knock it just slow, consistent progress with the medical cannabis program. Um, and one of the, the ways that we've been able to, to move forward is through certain champions. Um, we used to have some in the house. Now we have more in the Senate, but, um, we can shout them out. We can shout them out. Yeah. What happened to the ones in the house? You said used did they get voted out? No, no. They're still very much in power, if not even in more power right now. Um, but what they've done is they've really taken a liking to, to the consolidation of power regarding this industry. And they've ultimately been responsible. Our former champions are more responsible for creating this oligopoly that kind of runs the cannabis game. And I think what disappoints me most about the introduction of the oligopoly in the cannabis field is that we had an opportunity to create an industry. We had an opportunity to mirror this off of very successful programs on the mainland and even internationally. And we dropped the ball. Our legislators dropped the ball. And here we are as patients left in the dark. So to give a, some context for that, out of the eight licensees that were given each the, on Oahu, there two of the three are actually open. They've only opened a third of their capacity each. On Maui, one of the two dispensaries is officially open and has opened a third of its capacity. The other is open by appointment only, again, with a third of its capacity. On Big Island, neither dispensary is open and neither one plans to open really before the end of the year, to our knowledge. And Kauai is similarly far behind on the actual opening. So if... If I can interrupt, what you guys are saying is, it sounds like you're saying that uh, you mentioned old champions and an oligopoly. It kind of sounds like there's an sort of an old guard that got this ball rolling, and now we are looking to transition into hopefully new leadership with people who are going to be the new champions. So we have the opportunity to create those new champions because, as Josh mentioned, it is an election year. Who are those new champions? I mean... Who's shown themselves to be interested in the cause? There, Joyce San Bonaventura has been an incredible ally through all this. And who is she representing? She represents, um, I believe it's Puna on the Big Island. And, of course, speaking to Garrett's earlier points, there is a large patient population and cannabis culture in her district. Sure. So, you know, she listens to her constituents who are very open and avail themselves to what they need and how they want, how they could or should participate in this emerging economy. Sure. Um, who else? Senator Espero has been fantastic all the way through. We've also you representing. I'm sorry. Senator Espero will be running, is running for Lieutenant governor of Hawaii. Oh, actually, by the way, Shan Tsutsui, our Lieutenant governor okay. resigned. So I don't know who the appointment is going to be, but it could be interesting. Hmm. And as we well know, incumbents, unfortunately, have a great history of staying in office. And whoever, whoever gets seated or selected by the governor is probably going to put in a strong bid for lieutenant governor. Based on a whole seven, six months, six months yeah, of the job? Yeah, six months. That's so hell, the primary is coming up. And, yeah. you know, we have, we have the lowest voter, voter turnout in the nation. Chris, you mentioned the... Uh, the incumbent factor in the lieutenant governor race. Are you expecting that to play a role in, in any other races this year? In any other races? Yeah, absolutely. The governorship, um, Governor Ige is going to be up against some tough competition. 
Um, Speaking of Governor Ige, where does I don't know. I, I'm not 100 percent sure. Where does he stand on the issue of cannabis? So we've reached out to his camp, um, and I haven't gotten a firm answer on the way that he's going to approach the 2018 election. But what we've seen demonstrated by the Department of Health um, has been complete apathy to to engage with their own program. And I think one just looks to the top of the state to see who's calling the shots. And if they're getting away with it, obviously, that's that's part of his ethos as well. It's It's not a concern of his. And He's willing to just let it fall to the wayside or kind of flounder as it is. Sure. And I mean, is it fair to say that you both are in favor of, of a full legalization, similar to what you see in like Washington or Colorado? Or what is the position of HDA with regard to legalization? The position of the HDA is more of a realization that the medical program has failed. A consistently safe and inexpensive diversified product line is not available due to the established structure of the medical program that we have. Uh, the vertical program is, is horrible. It's crushing the patients and it's a broken model that's been disproved in a variety of other States that have such all as horizontalized. Who, who's, who's, who's had similar problems and then come back from it. New you well come back from it. Not really anyone. And that's why it's so broken. Um, but, but expansions in Arizona and New Mexico um, and expansions in New York are all on their way that direction. And so basically Arizona, New Mexico, New York all realized what we're doing, which was very similar to what Hawaii is doing, isn't working. That's correct. It's not helping the patients. In the end, the best fix is to provide an adult use or rec market. And the reason we think that's the best fix is because in the current in Hawaii in the current political climate, the only changes to the medical program are going to be incremental at best. And changing the program from a vertical structure to a horizontal structure is considerably more than an incremental change. And there is not any legislative nightmare. There is not any legislative will for that kind of overhaul of the system because they're still able to use the uh, excuse or just talking around of well, the program's not fully up and operational yet. We need to wait till then till we can get the data to see how it's operating. And we've been three years now, and half the dispensaries aren't even open yet at a third of their capacity. So there's another point to that, though, and this is what's been kicked around to me when I'm at the Capitol, is that, oh, we need to protect the investment. The investors need to see a return on their investment before we actually engage and and let anybody else play and in my opinion that is the wrong attitude if you're trying to protect eight people and their investors or eight businesses and their and their investors priorities are totally backward completely backward it's antithetical to patient care you have people who need access first to no harm right and also to how government should work sure so i i do want to i do want to get into it though where you mentioned uh, we're, we're talking about the election year. We're talking about how basically a full overhaul, uh, a reimagining of the system is needed. Um, are there candidates running right now who are potentially those new champions? Are there people that, that we can know about and people that we should look into and to supporting or donating to who are going to help bring about that vision of a more complete system? There certainly are, without a doubt. And who are they? 
the list is pretty long already. There's already a dozen candidates out there that are pro-cannabis. Can you give me some name? Anybody? I mean, we start at the top. Anybody in the governor's race? Um, earlier conversations with the camp for Colleen Hanabusa indicated that she understands what the patients are going through and more or less is in favor of allowing them to get what they need through whatever vehicle possible. That's really interesting, actually, because since she's running for governor and Ige's kind of waffled on it, is, I mean, do you guys feel like there's potentially a chance that cannabis is kind of a a defining issue in this gubernatorial race? It will only be a defining issue for the gubernatorial race or any of the other races on down the ballot if we make it an issue. That's right. Is that the plan? And that's the plan. Are you going to make it an issue? How do we make it an issue? How do we make it an issue? So our stance is it's not an issue. Let's make it a solution, right? Cannabis isn't an issue. It's God, you're slick. That's good. And that is... He's a lobbyist, folks. (laughs) Take everything with a grain of salt. Actually... For for what it's worth, I technically am not a lobbyist right now. I Take that with a grain of salt, too. I, I haven't registered. so For this session? For this session. So he's been a lobbyist for the past three years, but just not this session. He may yeah. also be in violation of ethics and disclosure laws. Nope, not yet. <laughs> not yet. We can file our paperwork anytime. And I definitely have not gotten paid for five hours worth of lobbying at the Capitol. In terms of the solutions that HDA, the Hawaii Dispensary Alliance, has um, helped create or implement? Have there been bills that that you guys have pushed through or that you guys have helped get? Absolutely. In the past, we've done a great job with the help of our members, with the help of our supporters. How many members? Uh, just shy of 100. Oh, wow. Right. All in, all in Hawaii? No, no, by no means. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Where are you guys, where are the members located? Mainland, internationally. Oh, wow. Yeah, the majority are in Hawaii. Majority are in Hawaii. But, um, you know, we're trying to create this business community, and it's really difficult as a trade association to, to, in, to incorporate or to include an ancillary services program or community that, that can't actually work with the dispensaries or be involved directly with the cannabis industry. Which brings us back to the problem of the vertical exactly, model. Exactly, exactly. The non-horizontal model, it's basically killing uh innovation in the industry in hawaii it's it's been sucked out completely and so i guess just to refresh i'm as i'm understanding it then it seems like the problem is uh is multiple layers uh having to do with number one the way the system was set up uh number two the players who set it up uh number three the verticality of the market and uh that the three primary solutions seem to be let's get new blood in, let's overhaul the system, and let's take the solution and and grow it. That's absolutely right. And we have a mechanism for doing that. And what uh, is that? We've started a super PAC, uh, Hawaii for Responsible Cannabis Use, or www.high for C-A-N-N, high for can. High for can. High as in H-I, like Hawaii. Dot org. What is the goal of the super PAC? It's to find new champions new cannabis issue-focused candidates. It's to replace the riffraff that's in there right now, and it's to advance the patient right to, to better access through an adult-use program by making it a solution to the election cycle coming up, by making it a solution to uh, budget shortfalls that are inevitable, 
Um, and by making it a solution to provide for better education and better infrastructure that Hawaii desperately needs. Uh, I'll say this for the listener out there um, who's not familiar with Hawaii, who's only perhaps visited Hawaii or thinks that um, we live in grass huts or use the coconut wireless and surf to work. Hawaii is just my mom and lives in Alabama. Aloha. Um, Yeah, the reality is Hawaii is a tough place. It's a tough place to make it. It's a tough place to live. We have urban blight. We have homelessness. We have, unfortunately, we have crime. Um, We're also in the throes of an opioid epidemic. And we see cannabis as a positive mechanism to not only influence and provide for patients um, and improve their livelihood or their lives, but also to create a strong business community and ultimately to derive significant tax windfalls for the state. And, and that's what we're trying to encourage through the development of High 4 Can or Hawaii 4 Responsible Cannabis Use. It's, hey, let's create those champions. Let's make this a conversation piece when they go into the community and say, hey, we, you, are you for more arts? Are you for more parks? Are you for more health care? Are you for better services and facilities? If the answer is yes... Cannabis is a solution to any and all of that in a grander sense. And yes, it's going to cause or necessitate tremendous overhaul of how many of our government functions and programs actually work. Or don't work. Or don't work. And that's, that's the case. They don't work. Cannabis, through the, through, by way of us creating a super PAC, can be an agent of change. It should be a solution to whatever perils Hawaii is suffering from. And that's an incredibly idealistic approach. But the reality is we've seen this happen time and time again in other adult use markets. Colorado, Washington, Alaska is already experiencing it. Nevada is experiencing it. It is incredible. Uh, The changes are incredible in all of these markets. And the opportunity for us to cash in on those as a people, as a culture, as an island state is, is supreme. And right now, we can't even kick the can down the road to get eight dispensaries open, to have 24 retail facilities open, to positively impact 20,000 patients. We're left with 500 patients going to the dispensaries, overpriced, limited quality of product that doesn't, that doesn't impact the, the greater public or the general public that it could and that it should. And in that capacity, I'm speaking strictly of the 20,000 patients. With the Super PAC, I mean, who are you guys targeting support for currently? Who do you see is, who do you have your eye on? So our initial goal with the Super PAC uh, is to raise sufficient funding for a statewide campaign to make cannabis an issue. Mm -hmm. So before we're able to provide support to specific races or name check particular candidates, we've got to actually make it an issue that they all, the candidates want to take a stance on in the first place that they see as beneficial to their races. And part of that is, hey, let's have that conversation at the ledge with certain players that are that are already friends of the industry in a sense that that respect the opportunity that a, a a vibrant medical cannabis program could have should have provided, and let's encourage them to create a cannabis caucus so that it is. And at this point, Chris is speaking on behalf of HDA because the super PAC can't do any of that. That is correct. So let's step back. Um, a super PAC is a non-candidate direct. Uh, operation. So we, the super PAC, Hawaii for Responsible Cannabis Use, won't go in and say, hey, 
here's here's free free marketing for you. That's not how it works. That's unethical. It's inappropriate, and it's not how what Hawaii for responsible cannabis use will actually play the game. The idea, as Garrett said, is to make it um, a conversation piece to create that campaign publicly, so that people are aware that there is an alternative to the person to the incumbent that has kept Auntie from getting her medicine for so long. And as we make that campaign more public and we encourage people to ask whomever their elected official is or the challenger, maybe, to, to make cannabis uh, a solution to their platform, then, then we're doing our job. And that's, that's what the Super PAC does. You're creating the platform. We're creating that platform, creating that, that conversation piece, creating that campaign so that perhaps these politicians or these political hopefuls might gravitate towards and say, you know what? Hey, I'm on board too. Cannabis, medical cannabis in Hawaii has failed. Adult use is the appropriate solution. Recreational marijuana is the solution. That's that's where we are. Where do people get involved if they want to? Do they give of time? Do they give of money? How how do they get involved with the super PAC? Well, right now we're not going to be able to do the things that we need to create this campaign without money. So we're in the the primary funding stages of Hawaii for Responsible Cannabis Use. Um, so what you should do is stay tuned to our Facebook page uh, and our website, which you can already donate through. But our Facebook page for the next couple of weeks, uh, starting this Thursday. Um, along with our other social media outlets uh, at for Hawaii for responsible cannabis use, we'll have kind of an ongoing series of uh, both information, uh, advertising, and other and other uh, community engagement links to give everybody uh, interested both the knowledge that they need to participate in the campaign, as well as the confidence um, to donate to a campaign like this to make it an issue that people feel like they have to take a stance on as uh, campaigners. Hawaii could be, as we've noted, such a hot spot for cannabis related innovation for cannabis um, marketplace development for in a sense even cannabis tourism everybody wants to come to hawaii chill on the beach and have a mai tai well significant numbers of millennials and younger travelers non-baby boomers aren't drinking as much and they appreciate the cannabis and you know what baby boomers appreciate the cannabis too so the opportunity that we're creating is, at the same time, um, the availability for brand recognition from these cannabis markets. If you are a dispensary owner or if you are a cannabis producer or manufacturer, if you make edibles, if you do vape pens, if you do pre-rolls, if you have the fire, if that's the one and you want to play in Hawaii, the only opportunity that that will avail itself in the next three years is Hawaii for responsible cannabis use. We are your ticket into the market. We are your ticket to create this reality and also to deliver your product to so many other visitors and friends of Hawaii. Where they can then take it back to their own states. The majority of Hawaii's visitors uh, come from states that are already legalized along the West Coast, California, Washington, Oregon, Alaska, Nevada. We have tremendous amounts of uh, visitor numbers from those states, and so the opportunity to have your products here or even just for visitors who want to be able to bring their uh, their medicine or their cannabis with them from those states to Hawaii is about the only way that's going to happen any time in the next decade. And given that tourism is such a large portion of our economy, uh, that's a very important issue. I think we can all agree on that. Well, Chris, Garrett, thank you both so much for being here. 
Uh, We really are appreciative of your time. Listeners, uh, if you'd like to learn more about what Chris and Garrett are doing at the Hawaii Dispensary Alliance on the government services side, uh, lobbying for policies and pushing bills through that are going to help you get the medicine that you want and need faster, uh, check out their website, hawaiidispensaryalliance.org. There they also have links to uh, the Cannabis Insider, which is a trade association magazine published by the Hawaii Dispensary Alliance, which is one numerous awards throughout the industry. Uh, Also, if you're interested in donating to the Super PAC, if you want to help elect candidates with a pro-cannabis stance, or at least make cannabis an issue that is going to potentially shape an election, uh, either now or in some years in the future, please find their website at hawaii4responsiblecannabisuse.org or hi4can.org. That's H-I, the number four, C-A-N-N dot O-R-G. Chris Garrett, thanks again so much. Shout outs. Shout outs. What you got? Shout out to Rumors Nightclub closed its doors after 34 years of proud service. From the 80s, 90s, aughts, and until just recently, the place to see and be seen, and your auntie's favorite place to have about six shots cut loose and flirt with some young men. And get chlamydia. Well, not at Rumors. Upstairs in the Almona Hotel after. Rumors. Also, shout out friend of the show, Nick Kornitzer. Uh, Yo, Nick. The last memory I have of Rumors Nightclub was at somebody's grad party back in 2008, and we were dancing in those cages together. Uh, For all the mainland listeners, I am as perplexed as you are about why the men were dancing in cages. Don't be. Just embrace it. Okay. I saw this, uh, I think, uh, uh, KHON, Wake Up Today, uh, Uncle Ron Mizutani. Shout out Ron Mizutani. Also, apropos of nothing. Ron Mizutani also has a dish named after him at Shiro Simon and Aea. Shout out Shiro Simon and Aea. Um, but anyway, they had they were showing they were they were talking about rumors closing, and in their their B roll was must have been late eighties, early nineties, just like the brothers and sisters in like their dressed to friggin' kill early nineties like local attire and just grooving, and it you know it's the end of an era, man. Rumors. Shout out, Culture 2, Migos, Quality Control Records dropped last week. They're, they're highly anticipated follow-up to their smashing, groundbreaking success, Culture. Skrr, skrr, skrr. Uh, shout out, Migos. Shout out, Zaytoven. 24 tracks. It's kind of long. It's definitely not a mixtape. I think I was telling you about this maybe at some point in the, in the past, but uh, a guy I went to college with who played football at Auburn, he was like, he started. He wasn't amazing. I what position? Think- he played defensive end. Big, uh, his, big dude? What are his stats? What are the stats? What are the stats? How big he was? Yeah. He was probably 6'4", 250. Okay. He was a large guy. Antoine Hot Boy Carter, number 45. Shout out Hot Boy. I called him Hot Boy Carter because he had H-O-T one way and B-O-Y the other way uh, descending vertically. Like teardrops? Uh, like teardrops. Uh, that's across each of his eyes. That's a good look. Um, he did get those tattoos removed, though. Oh. Uh, he got them... Initially, when he was, I believe, 16 or 17. And that's a life choice. When he was 22, maybe those weren't the best places yeah. for those tattoos. Anyways, uh, Antoine Carter, hot boy, as others called him. Hot boy did not have a professional football career and uh, ended up somehow finding his way into running security for Migos, despite the fact that he's not from Atlanta. And I don't know that he knew a lot of people there. Was he now, was he on duty when uh, Quavo's chain got snatched at that one concert? I actually do not know that. Oh, this is uh, something we'll have to look into. These are we're listeners. Asking, you have our 
promise. Our solemn pledge. We will look into that by some point in the future. Blue Hawaii asking the tough questions. Always. Shout out to the people who actually gave feedback on our episode. We got a lot of really great feedback from a lot of people. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Um, One thing that we promised was whoever commented uh, or whoever asked us questions about things to talk about, we'd talk about. One of the things I always talked about is the profile pic, as one might say, of you and I throwing up shakas uh, in Seoul, South Korea. Seoul, South Korea. Here's what happened. We were flying back from uh, a country in Southeast Asia doing some uh, governmental consulting work uh, for a international organization uh, that we will not name. It rhymes with Wazian. And on our way back, the only flight that comes back through Honolulu leaves through Seoul Incheon Airport, which is, if you've never been... The Gucciest airport. The Gucciest airport. On Earth. This place has a string quartet. It has a classical piano player playing at all hours of the day. The food and beverage selection are unparalleled anywhere in the world. The train system that runs through it is incredibly efficient. The architecture of the airport is just astounding, and the facilities are immaculate. So we hadn't slept in about 35 hours. We are traipsing about South Korea, uh, looking something like three heroin addicts who are constantly falling asleep. And we walk around Seoul, uh, meeting tons of very, very friendly people and doing what Hawaii people do no matter where they are, which is, of course, throw up chakras. If you look on the ground in Seoul, South Korea today, if you step on something, some, if you get something on the bottom of your shoe, there is a statistical 75% chance that it is a shaka that we threw up somewhere in that city while taking photos. Also, speaking of things you notice as a tourist in Seoul, uh, every building has some sort of plaque that says, uh, this blah, 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 was burned down by the Japanese in 1388. Rebuilt by the Koreans in 1400. Burned down by the Japanese again in 1722. Rebuilt by the Koreans in 1724. And burned down by the Japanese again in 1905. It is... The resiliency of the Korean people. You can understand why those two countries have a complex relationship. The Japanese really went to town on Seoul. A lot of burning. And those people there have just turned it into, truthfully, one of the best cities in the world, I'd say. So the exact photo in question, we're walking through one of the numerous, easily approached uh, temples, gates, castles, what have you. And we come to this one and... It seems like a pretty good time for Shaka. You knew what we had to do, and we did it. And that's the story. Also, the food in Seoul is amazing. Yeah. Speaking of food, two more shout-outs, one each from us this week. If you're downtown, like we usually are, and hungry, and pretty broke. Where would you say to go? I would recommend you go to OEC Cafe. Where is it? On Queen Street, just across from Mililani Mall. Basically, you walk in. It's this very nice place. Lady at the register, super friendly. Uh, they have a pretty ro- pretty consistent rotating menu. Essentially, it's like one local plate lunch style dish, one sort of maybe like Japanese local fusion dish, and another more out and out like vegan, vegetarian, healthy option. Sounds delicious. Basically, like anything from spinach noodles and tofu to tonkatsu with extra sauce. Uh, you can get to whatever the heck it is what, vegans eat. Whatever the heck it is vegan. Well, I guess I guess they would eat that tofu 
Yeah, the tofu. Yeah. But anyway. Never mind. Sorry, vegans. In and out, broke them out lunch, $10. It's always, you know, it's never cooked heavy. It's not oily, not greasy. It's always light. You always feel good. You always feel like you made a smart decision. And you're supporting local businesses. Heck yeah. Uh, my shout out this week is going to be for Arancino. If you have never been there, if you're a mainland listener, Arancino. and you're coming to oh, signore, you come to the restaurant, you eat the you pasta. You come to Arancino. Uh, if you're coming to Arancino for the first time, what you should know is it will be more expensive for you. That's because Arancino, which I am recommending, uh, the location on Beach Walk in Waikiki. I know, for all my Kamaaina listeners, I know it's Waikiki. I know. But just trust me here. Arancino on Beachwalk, they do a Kama Aina lunch special. 50% off. 50, it's 5-0% off. That's a spicy meatball. You're getting their delicious focaccia bread. Focaccia? Focaccia. You're getting their delicious I, focaccia to, bread. To be fair, I am married to an Italian. Yeah, that's true. You should know how to say it. Yeah, focaccia. Focaccia. You're getting, you're getting their delicious focaccia bread. You are also going to get a salad. You are also going to get an entree and all of it for all about 1350 that's I not bad am, I'm normal a large price man. normal price 27 dollars. Mm-hmm. it's incredibly expensive if you're not a local or not a comma i should say you will probably have to present a hawaii id and i'm not really sure if that special applies to the kahala locate the kahala hotel location either way it probably you, doesn't if you find yourself in waikiki for lunch if you happen to work down there and you haven't heard about it, no matter where you work, it's worth a little walk over to Beachwalk Avenue. The service is really good. The food is incredible. Probably my favorite Italian food in Hawaii. Again, the service is great. Their bread is to die for. I've never had focaccia bread that good. Um, and then that also actually brings me into a bonus restaurant recommendation. Bonus? There's more? But wait. For free? Well, it's $9.99. Send it to at... Ryan Little on the Cash App, I think. Make sure it's me, though, because I'm not sure. I don't really use the Cash App that often. Um, Venmo or Bust? I don't have the Venmo. My wife has my Venmo account. You know you can download your own, right? No, I, we only have one bank account. We're that type of family. We, we joined our somewhere, finances. Somewhere, Suze Orman is, is screaming. When we joined our souls in marriage, we also joined our bank accounts. And one, that's why we two, only have one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So M's in my bank account. Here is... Your pro, your free pro tip, your free restaurant uh, pro tip. Il Buco. Of the week. It's Il Buco in Waikiki. At the Friend San Villa the, Hotel. The San Villa Hotel. Friend of the pod owns it. Cousin Salvatore. Cousin Salvatore. Straight off the boat from Naples, Italy. Is about as authentic as it gets. He, the, even, he even used to have a Vespa. The most delicious meats, salads, bread, and wine. Vino. That you could ever have it's one of the consummate honolulu type haunts where you would never know where to find it it's out of the way again bottom of the San waikiki san villa hotel yep on alawai boulevard on alawai boulevard it is phenomenal it is delicious it magnifico is every penny and probably the only place in the state that holds a candle to arancino but if you think you got a better italian restaurant let us know because we freaking love Italian food. Mm-hmm. We'll eat it all the time. But Oh, no, time out. Uh, of course, my wife, my mother-in-law, mm-hmm. better than better than the restaurants. I'm just going to put those both out there sure. for yeah. you know self-preservation. Absolutely, you got to do it. Um, 
Familia. Familia. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's it. Food, get in touch. Issues, get in touch. Sports, get in touch. Politics, get in touch. Also, life, get in touch. And audience, we have some exciting personal news to share. Not only was last episode our first ever debut in the podcasting world. And not only did we debut at number one on iTunes. Did we? In Antarctica. Whatever's going on at the uh, Polar Research Station, that's up to them. They're cold, man. They yeah. want to they wanna think about warm things. Blue Hawaii is a natural, a natural place for their minds to drift, and uh, they started listening. We also, in addition to receiving uh, a little bit of praise, a little bit of feedback, a little bit of constructive criticism, we received our first ever threat of legal action. Now comes the part where we throw our heads back and laugh. Ready? Ready! <laughs> <laughs> So I think that means we finally made it. Thanks to everyone out there for helping and supporting. And uh, keep listening. Keep listening. Aloha. And also, we still believe that the Proud Boys are Nazis. Blue Hawaii.